Support for this podcast comes from Canva. When you look good, you feel good. But when your presentations look great, it can feel like you're walking on a cloud. You can design stunning work presentations, docs, whiteboards, and videos with Canva. Start with a designer-made template. Use it as a springboard for your design. Add images, graphics, charts, and more from Canva's massive media library. Start designing today at canva.com. Designed for work. Welcome to the PropG Pod's Office Hours. This is the part of the show where we answer your questions about business, big tech, entrepreneurship, and whatever else is on your mind. If you'd like to submit a question, please visit officehours.propgmedia.com. Again, that's officehours.propgmedia.com. First question. Hi, Scott. This is Sebastian, 25 years old from Munich, Germany, recent law school grad. Usually you shared via LinkedIn Apple's announcement regarding the password replacement via this concept of passkey with face ID and touch ID. And I would like to know from you the following. If you combine this feature with the thoughts of Kevin Roos from New York Times presented in your recent PropG podcast on the dangers of AI in the near future, where he says that you should maybe imagine internet where the vast majority of content is created by bots and AI, doesn't that maybe indicate that Apple's passkey idea might have way bigger consequences than just making it easier to log into web accounts, but more like creating an easy way of human verification regarding content of any kind. So what are your thoughts on this? Given the current Musk Twitter issue, this definitely has a certain relevance. Do you think that Apple, by way of first changing the way we use passwords, will sublimely add a new simple way of human verification and identification on the internet? Sure, there exists rechapter and that stuff, but I mean, the user experience is terrible and I don't like it. Um, keep up the good work. You influence my personal as well as my professional career a lot. Uh, Sebastian from Germany, uh, thanks for the question. And it's, it's, it always amazes me when people can think and speak that fast in a second language. One of our uh, very talented people here at PropG is a woman named uh, Maria Petrova. And Maria is initially from Bulgaria. She speaks four or five languages. And she will proofread, when we do a book, we have a book coming out called Adrift American 100 Charts, available in September. Uh, and she'll, she's the last line of defense, and she proofs it. And this is someone who understands nomenclature, diction, grammar, better than anyone at the firm who grew up speaking English. I mean, that's just, that's just so impressive. Anyways, I'm impressed, Sebastian, that you're so articulate and can think and process so fast in a second language. Okay, back to your question. So first off, some data. According to a study from Imperva, malicious bots accounted for more than a quarter of internet traffic in 2021. I don't believe that. I think it's more than half. Good bots, such as those that make online content discoverable, account for 15% of traffic. I think we always have a need for both sideism here to talk about good bots. Are there really good bots? Okay. The bad bots vastly outweigh the good bots, and humans account for the remaining uh, 58%, according to the study. Bad bots are harder to detect than good bots, what a shocker, because they interact with applications the way a human would. Hmm. Some, some sort of philosopher issue or mindfuck there. They're apparently becoming more advanced, and the most evasive kinds of bad bots account for about two-thirds of all bad bot traffic. Uh, they're also designed to get past the defense mechanisms that are currently standard across the internet. So this is a big issue, and big tech likes to pretend it's an intractable issue. It isn't. And one of the big remedies here is, as you point out, identity and some sort of biometric identification. Now, Big Brother and Black Mirror and conspiracy theorists will get all freaked out about that. Well, let me tell you, there's already 
biometric identification. I like biometric identification. I want clear. I want to be able to just walk into a stadium when I go see Chelsea play Liverpool and them say, okay, just let them in, no security. I think at some point you shouldn't have to have 95-year-old grandmothers walk through a metal detector. They have never in the history of uh, commercial aviation disrupted a flight. What's important is that you have thoughtful people passing regulation that says you cannot weaponize someone's biometrics and start following them around and going fishing expeditions for crime. You can't put technology back in a bottle. You can't say, okay, stop or hold up. That's a Luddite. Stop stop advancing technology here. What you can have is a very thoughtful layer of laws that say, all right, even if you can identify someone using their facial recognition technology, we as a government are not going to track people. We're going to scrub that data that unless they're accused of a crime against the state or it falls under terrorism or some sort of child endangerment, we just don't use that data. So I think it's more about the laws than it is about the technology. Identity has huge upside. Uber and Airbnb are a function of identity, and that is you would be unlikely to get into the back of a stranger's car, and a stranger would be unlikely to let you get into the back of their car unless there was really powerful identity constructs, and that is every driver, they know who they are. If they do something bad to you, they can track them down immediately, and if you pull a gun on the driver, the Uber account says who you are, and they can track you down really quickly. If you let someone into your apartment, into your house, Airbnb says there's a certain amount of trust because we have their identity. So I think that stuff is super powerful. And here's the thing. You want to talk about the fastest means of cleaning up all the vile shit on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook and YouTube? Identity. Why is LinkedIn just more civil? Because everybody says, well, that's probably a real person. And at some point in my life, I might ask that person for a job. So people are just more likely to say, you fucking fuck, you shouldn't be teaching, and I'm showing up to your house and murdering you. And I've literally had messages like that on Twitter. You don't get those on LinkedIn. Supposedly LinkedIn is having some of the same problems, but its problems are, it's a dumpster fire compared to the nuclear mushroom cloud that is that is Instagram, Twitter, uh, Meta, and YouTube. So enforcing identity is incredibly powerful, and I'm excited about this technology, and Apple has proven itself to be, I think, a pretty responsible fiduciary for our data. Um, I think we want age gating and more forced identity. I want to know who the fuck you are when you say these things. Because if you were forced to say some of the vile shit that people say on Twitter with your identity in your face, you know what? You wouldn't say it. You wouldn't say it. Thanks for the question, Sebastian. Next question. Hello, Professor G. This is Dave from Parker, Colorado. I had a question about the unemployment numbers. Currently, they say there are two jobs for every person looking. And I was curious to get your opinion on what the cause of the supply problem was. Studies have shown our immigration policy over the last five years has cost us over 2 million workers. Of the over 1 million deaths in the U.S. to COVID, about 45% of those were of working class age between 18 and 65. I also heard, but haven't seen any numbers, that the folks in their mid-50s to mid-60s opted for early retirement. But does that really account for the low supply? Thank you. Love the show. Keep up the good work. Uh, Dave from Parker, Colorado. I immediately assume anyone from Colorado is just good at life. Congratulations on your good judgment to live in the great state of Colorado. So as of June 1st, the unemployment rate in the U.S. held steady at 3.6% for three months straight. It's hard to think of a recession when there's just this kind of full employment. That, That basically means anybody who wants a job can get one. 
you may not get the job you want, but if you really want to work, you can find a job when unemployment is at 3.6%. According to the Labor Department, there were a record 11.9 million open jobs in March. And as you said, there are about two open jobs for every unemployed person. Before the pandemic, there were always more unemployed people uh, than there were available jobs. Think about that. Post-pandemic, two uh, open jobs for every person looking for a job. Pre-pandemic, there was more people looking than there were open jobs. That's wild. Why has that happened? Why has that happened? The number of people who quit their jobs in March and April hovered around record highs of 4.4 million per month, but most of them left those positions for better offers. As far as retirement goes, two and a half million people more than expected retired in the first 18 months of the pandemic. By the end of 2021, the retired population reached nearly 52 million people, up 15% in five years. That's extraordinary. That trend may be reversing, though, as roughly 1 million formerly retired folks have re-entered the workforce in 2022. I think that's more, or my gut would be that when stocks were at a crazy high the last one or two years, a lot of people looked at their 401ks and said, I can retire, and said, I'm going to retire a little bit early. I don't want to go to work where I have to put up with a mask or put up with the public, or I like the idea of hanging out with my grandkids or just taking a breather, and I can afford to. And then all of a sudden, you know, in the last six months, they can afford less to retire. So they're thinking about getting back in the work environment, or maybe they want to get out of the house, or, or maybe they just enjoy working, whatever it might be. But I don't understand where all these people went. The great resignation here, or uh, more aptly, the great reassessment is just striking here. At Panera, company I was on the board of, we used to have a job fair, 100 people show up, 12 offers, eight people show up on Monday morning. Now it's 10 people show up, four offers, and two show up. Uh, I don't know if it's a sense of entitlement. I don't know if it's people deciding I'm going to take advantage of mobility and gig work and Airbnb and leave a high-cost area so I don't need as much money. I don't know if it's money they save from the stimulus that gives them more options. But the workforce has basically, for the first time, especially frontline workers, and there's some real benefits to this, have more leverage than they've had in 40 years. And I think that's great. I'd like to see a much higher minimum wage. Uh, I think it's forcing companies and the ecosystem to take money out of shareholders' pockets and redistribute it to labor, which I think is overdue. If you look at productivity relative to wages, productivity has steadily climbed the last 40 years, but wages among lower middle income workers has been flat, meaning there's been trillions of dollars in surplus economic creation, trillions of dollars in value creation over the last 40 years in our economy. Where has it gone? It's gone to shareholders. So the shareholder class, it's been disco, you know, champagne and cocaine for the last 40 years, but our frontline workers and our laborers, if you will, it's just been flat. Now, they haven't done worse. That's a bit of a myth, but they haven't done any better. And when you have your Instagram account showing you how everyone is killing it in the shareholder class, and you're struggling to pay for your kid's college, which, by the way, has absolutely exploded in terms of cost, you feel bad. You feel shamed. You feel upset. And the ultimate compact of a society is that you're going to do better than your parents. For the first time in our nation's history, a 30-year-old man or woman isn't doing as well as his or her mom was at the age of 30. The great resignation here, I don't understand where these people are going. I think people are reassessing life. I think COVID may have said life is short. And I think also people have recognized this myth that they're supposed to be loyal to organizations. Don't be loyal to an organization. An organization is a legal entity. It's not going to love you. It's not concerned with the condition of your soul. Be loyal to people. And if you're working at a great platform that has an incredible culture and an amazing business, 
and it's going to continue to pay you really well and have that mole removed, then fine, be loyal to your family and be loyal to healthcare and be loyal to economic security. But the notion somehow that you owe some goodwill to a legal entity, it's just, it's just staggering what has happened around how labor is being reshaped. Let me go back. So the bottom line is I don't have a good answer for what has caused the supply imbalance other than to say that if you keep wages flat and all this power constantly accretes to management versus labor, at some point the market rips back. And I think the market is ripping back in a vicious way and I think it's a good thing. Thanks for the question. We have one quick break before our final question. Stay with us. When your work presentations and docs look good, you look good. You can design stunning work presentations, docs, whiteboards, and videos with Canva. You can start with a designer-made template, then use that as a springboard for your design. Add images, graphics, charts, and more from Canva's massive media library. Or get a huge head start with AI-powered Canva presentations and docs. Just describe what you want with a few words, and Canva will generate amazing slides and text in seconds. It's AI that anybody can use, no matter what department you work in or whatever work task you need to get done. Look, we all need to visually communicate at work. Canva makes it easy to get your point across while looking professional. And at the end of it all, that stunning Canva presentation is going to make you look good. Wow any audience and finish your work faster. Start designing today at canva.com. Design for work. Welcome back. Question number three. Hey there, Prof G. This is Martin from Ecuador. He lives in Mexico. So yeah, right off the bat, I live in Mexico because I sold a fairly successful YouTube uh, channel slash production company a couple years ago and wanted bigger challenges and you know, what bigger challenges there than the biggest, most thriving Spanish-speaking content market there is. That being said, I recently moved from Mexico City to Merida, which is off the coast of the Yucatan. And I haven't had issue be, being remote since I moved here. But seeming as the as the streaming wars have ramped up, um, uh, and I read your book about how you had to stay relevant while you were taking care of your mother. What I'm, uh, what I wanted to ask are what are your recommendations and heuristics as as far as staying relevant when you're not, you know, living in the zip code where everything's happening. Uh, so far, being remote and, and having my business partner who's still based in Mexico City, has worked marvels and and it hasn't made much of a difference, but uh, how can I go that extra mile to, to stay very much visible to the stakeholders, that, you know, the people that I sell content to? And thank you very much. Uh, love, <laughs> love the show. Love Pivot. Love everything. Bye. Uh, Martin from Ecuador, thank you so much for the thoughtful question. You bring up a host of really interesting issues. Uh, so the first thing is, I hope you take time to pause and reflect on your success and your talent. It sounds like you're very talented at your age. You sounded, I don't know, kind of 30s, 40s bit to have started a, a creative firm and been able to monetize and sell it means you're very talented. Uh, so well done and congratulations. I think that um, entrepreneurs need to be in cities. There's no getting around it. Two-thirds of economic value is going to happen in the 20 super cities globally. When you play tennis, when you play with someone better than you, your game rises. And it's the same way in cities. When you're in a city, you're around a concentration of great tennis players. Everybody there is pretty good. Cities are expensive, they're competitive, they're noisy, and it basically weeds out. If you started someone like, yeah, I'm not that into work, and you know, I'm smart, I'm not that smart, I, I kind of 
work to live, I don't live to work, guess what? That person doesn't end up in a city because cities are full body contact capitalism. They attract the best and brightest. They spit people out like there's no tomorrow because they're so hard to stay because they're so fucking expensive and competitive. But here's the thing. Everything's situational. If your partner is sort of the front man or front woman around clients, um, and you're the operations person managing a remote team where you can maybe do the arbitrage of getting developers less expensively in a place that has lower cost of living, fine. Another company I was on the board of Olapic had this incredible operation in Cordoba, Argentina, where they have a fantastic engineering university, and we had someone down there managing them, and that just worked really well. But if it's a client-facing business, and I get the sense it is in a creatively driven business, you know, if you're really ambitious, I would suggest you want to have as many people, especially senior people, in the city. Meeting people, having lunches. I'm going to L.A. today. I will just do four meetings a day. I live in Delray Beach, Florida. I love it here. I can afford to do this. It, you know, it's a lifestyle arbitrage. It's fantastic. We live near the beach. I take my kids boogie boarding. I love the lifestyle. I have never figured out a way. I have never made a dollar in Florida. Whatever it is I do, thought leadership, whatever you want to call it, it just doesn't happen for me down here. I'm in a position now where I can do that. Why am I in a position now? Because I spent 10 years in San Francisco. I spent 10 years in New York putting up with all the expense and the bullshit and the constant nonstop work and uh, you know, did, did reasonably well there. And it gave me the economic opportunity to move somewhere else. Some people opt out early and say, I don't want to be in a city. I'm blathering on here. If you're ambitious and you want to outperform your peers professionally and economically, get to the city. It's situational. If your partner accomplishes all that front-end work or client-facing work in the city and you manage a remote workforce, then I get it. But if you really want to excel, if you really want to kind of get in fighting shape, if you really want to be a baller, so to speak, one word, city. That's all for this episode. Again, if you'd like to submit a question, please submit a voice recording by visiting officehours.profgmedia.com. Our producers are Caroline Shagrin and Drew Burrows. Claire Miller is our associate producer. If you like what you heard, please follow, download, and subscribe. Thank you for listening to the Prop G Pod from the Fox Media Podcast Network. We will catch you on Thursday. Thanks to Canva for their support. You're busy, there's no denying that, and we all wish for just a little more time in the day. So why not let Canva help you get your work done faster and more efficiently? You can get started with their AI-powered presentations. Just describe what you want with a few words and Canva will generate amazing slides in seconds. It's AI that anybody can use, no matter what department you work in or whatever task you need to get done. Finish your deck faster. Start designing today at canva.com. Designed for work.